Thank you, Ben. I want to encourage you to take your Bible, if you will, and find your place in Revelation 16. And as you are turning there, you guys think I forgot about kids, didn't you? I didn't. A little bit, but no. Uh, we're going to dismiss our kids to Kids Church at this time. So if you're three years through third grade and you want to go to Kids Church, which is all of you, if you guys can make your way to the back, our team is back there to receive you. I had about five women look and say something at the same time. I say all the time around my house because I have four females that I don't know what I would do if I didn't have a woman tell me what to do. I mean, that's just the way it is. I work with women. I live with women. It's just uh, it's crazy. We need some more men on our staff, and so we're working to that end. Revelation 16, if you'll find your place there, and as you're doing so, let me share just a couple things with you. Um, I saw yesterday for the first time, I saw it again this morning, but our, uh, our mission partners in South Asia, um, our, our stateside, or our, I guess, American missionaries that are there have been battling some illnesses for, for a few weeks, I guess, off and on, different sorts of things. But our national partners that work with them have uh, caught a case of, of COVID there, and, and one is very, very, very ill, coughing up blood and things like that in the hospital. And so I just want to encourage you as a church, pray with them. I'm going to pray over them at the end of the service, uh, pray your blessings on them, and God would bring healing there. Um, they're continuing to minister. I mean, India's been shut down for some time, and so we want to pray and lift them up as God's uh, grace and mercy upon them. And then tomorrow at 12, there's going to be a graveside funeral for Irvin Wood. Some of you may remember Irvin from many years ago. Uh, I buried his wife back in January, and then he passed away the end of the, this past week. And so that visitation will be tomorrow at Barton, Barnett and Bidden, Bennett and Barton, got it backwards, at 1030. And then the graveside will be here at 12. The family wanted me to invite um, any of you who might have known him from years past. And so um, that's going to be a sweet time tomorrow. Revelation chapter 16. Um, as we sang this morning, I just felt like the songs really kind of set up what's happening in the text here. As we have been walking through Revelation, we have seen God's faithfulness and his goodness, his provision to his people, and salvation to those who would hear the gospel and receive it. And so uh, I'm grateful for the, for the music and the songs that we've sung this morning because they're a great reminder of God's grace and his mercy as well as his justice as we've sing. You know, I feel like sometimes as Christians, we obviously love to sing. We love to celebrate the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God. We love to declare the victory, as we sang this morning, the victory that we have in Jesus and the pardon that he gives us, the peace that endures all throughout our lives and no matter what's going on there. These are wonderful truths about God, our Redeemer, and the salvation that he's given us. I mean, think about what we do as Christians. We glory in the cross. We glory in the gifts that he gives us. We, we glory in, in how he's made those available. But I wonder at times, do we celebrate and, and wonder how those things came to be? Do we wonder how he's able to provide grace, how he's able to provide mercy, how as a holy God he's able to love those who are unholy, who are rebellious and sinful and everything the opposite of what he is? The songs that we sing this morning, specifically, many of the songs that we sing answer the very question we're asking. How is it that he's able to provide these things? Well, O oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. 
That's how we get grace and mercy. Great is thy faithfulness, we sing. And then it goes on to say, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. How does the pardon come? It's through the blood. That's where the victory is. How is our sin pardoned and forgiven? It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the only way for the gift of redemption to become ours was for the pure blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to be shed upon the cross and offered as a redeeming sacrifice, satisfying the just wrath of God the Father. Too oftentimes, grace is on our minds to the neglect of of justice. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about that. He says, we love to play on the silver trumpet of grace rather than on the ram's horn of justice. I would declare this morning that there's no way that we could have grace and mercy but for the justice of God as well. Justice is satisfied on the cross of Calvary. There's a hymn that's really been ministering to my heart in recent weeks, and it's, I think, arranged or written, arranged, and played by Sovereign Grace. Here's here's what this song says. It's called, Come, O Sinner. Come, O Sinner, come and see Christ the Lord upon a tree. See the crown of thorns adorn the King who labors to breathe in agony. Come, O Sinner, come and see what our God became to set us free. Come, O sinner, come and mourn, for he calls your sin his own. Do you feel the weight of justice, sir? He suffers the wrath that you deserve. Come, O sinner, come and mourn, for he bears the curse for all you've done. Oh, the wonder of this awesome scene where our Savior bleeds. Oh, the power of the love of God. Come and stand in awe. Come, O sinner, come rejoice. Mercy fills this place of scorn. For he dies to save his enemies, that all who draw near may know his peace. Come, O sinner, come rejoice. Through the death of Christ, death is destroyed. Oh, the wonder of this awesome scene where our Savior bleeds. Oh, the power of the love of God. Come and stand in awe. Isn't that a beautiful hymn, a beautiful song to sing about the goodness and the mercy, but the justness of God. You see, God is a, is a myriad of wonderful characteristics. God is holy, and God is love, and God is grace, and God is mercy, and God is faithful, and God is good, and God is true, and God is all of those things. But one of the things that, that surrounds and holds all those together is the fact that God is unchanging. He is immutable. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Isn't it good to know that God never changes? We change. You and I change. Everything in this world changes. I mean, up one day, one day and down the other, everything is always in flux. But God never is. He's faithful to his people. What a blessing it is to know that his love is never going to waver over your life. It's not contingent upon how good you are or what you do for him. His love never changes. And equally, what a blessing to know this morning that the justice of God also never changes. The judgment of God is an expression of his just and righteous nature. In fact, that's what we see as we move back into Revelation 16 and look at the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Read with me this chapter. We looked at it and talked about the curse last week. This morning, I want us to look at these seven bowls in detail. John says this, And I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go 
and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Jesus seems to have a parenthetical statement here to the church. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled, that is the nations, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. It's a bleak day for humanity. Seven angels here were given the seven bowls of the wrath of God. We saw that back in chapter 15. Now as we move into chapter 16, and those bowls of wrath carried by those seven angels are going to be poured out. Judgment is being dispensed. And so a loud voice from the temple commands the angels to go and to pour them out. Seals, as we remember, destroyed a quarter of the earth. The trumpets destroyed a third of the earth. Now in these seven bowls, the entire planet and everyone who bears the mark of the beast and worships the image will be destroyed. The bowls will affect the whole earth and directly impact everyone who bears the mark. The voice, obviously, is that from God the Father. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 8 tells us that as the bowls are being dispensed, the glory of God is so intense in the temple that no one, angel or human, was allowed to enter the temple. 
And so the voice is God the Father directing the angels to pour the bowls out. So the first angel pours out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores come upon the people of all the earth. I told you last week that this replicates the sixth Egyptian plague there in Exodus chapter 9. The sores that come up on the people's bodies are a sore that is an abscess or an ulcerous type of sore. It's often caused by an infection. And so something comes out of these bowls that creates this infection in the skin of the people. And these sores, these ulcerous sores begin to develop on their bodies. And so that they are in agony and great pain. They're unable to walk, to sit, to lie down and do anything without intense pain. John reminds the church here that God's wrath and the plague will only be poured out on those who bear the mark of the beast. The second bowl is poured out. This bowl is poured into the sea, and it turns into blood. You, if you remember, the second trumpet resulted in the, the, a burning mountain being cast into the sea, and a third of the fish and a third of the ships were destroyed from that. Now everything in the sea is destroyed, bringing civilization and trade to an abrupt end. The sea turns into blood. Can you imagine that? we got a lot of ocean lovers in the church. Most people love the ocean. You love to go sit on the surf. Can you imagine the next time you're there, rather than salt water being lapped onto the sea, now it's nothing but stinky, nasty blood. That's what's going to happen. The second bowl. The third bowl comes from the third angel, and he pours the bowl out onto the rivers and to the springs. And so now, not only salt water, but all fresh water becomes blood, further adding to the economic and environmental collapse of the world. In response to these judgments affecting the water supply, the angel of the waters. Interesting that, that it tells us here that there's an angel in charge of the waters. We've seen some of that already, that there seems to be angels who are in charge of various aspects of the physical world. And so this angel, verse 5, declares that God is just in this judgment, that he is just in pouring out this wrath upon humanity. It's just to give them blood to drink because, he says, they have shed the blood of saints and the prophets. And so he says, this is what they deserve. Harsh words from heaven. It's harsh words to think about that when we sin and rebel against God, we actually get what we deserve in judgment. That when we refuse the gospel, we refuse Christ, and thus we're choosing hell, when we get that, we are just in giving or receiving what God gives to us. It's what we've wanted all along. The martyrs of chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, who are below the altar there, are vindicated in what is said here. And I love how it tells us that this is now the God who was and the God who is. Rather than what we've seen in elsewhere, like in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, that God is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. Now he's no longer the God who is to come because what was to come is now here and there is no more future. We're just now in eternity, and the God who was and is is acting in judgment upon the apostate of the world. Verse 7 echoes this just action of God and declares that he is, as the Lord Almighty, is true and just in his judgment. The fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun, and the people are scorched. 
the literal picture as we read it here is much more than just a massive sunburn. It's not a bad day at the beach for these people. In fact, the Greek literally says that they are burned with great burning. So it's, as we try to make sense of this, it's difficult for us to kind of picture this. Is it tongues of fire that's creating them or causing them to be on fire? Or is it just scorching and melting their skin? We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we do know it's a picture of intense judgment, intense pain. In fact, it sounds a whole lot like a futuristic glimpse of what hell is going to be like. That you're going to be ever burning and not able to die, ever in agony, and never be able to come to relief. The place of eternal fire will be filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth, and here they seem to be weeping and gnawing their tongues. As sinners experience the judgment of God, they refuse to repent and to turn to him. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom is plunged into darkness. This is the only mention of the Antichrist kingdom or his throne. And so what John is doing here as he receives this revelation is he's contrasting it with what we've already seen, but also what we're going to see in the other part of this chapter, the throne of God and the voice that comes from the throne of God and the fact that God is in control of all things and he's putting an end to the dominion of the Antichrist who's leading the entire world. So he pours out this bowl of wrath upon this kingdom, and it's plunged into darkness. Similar to the three three days of darkness that came over the Egyptians in Exodus chapter 10, but now it's expanded into eternity. So like the Egyptian plague, there's this darkness will also be felt. Can you imagine that it is so dark? That's what it says in Exodus 10. That it was so dark for those three days that they could feel the darkness. It's going to be like that. This word darkness is um, an interesting concept. In, ancient, in the ancient world, darkness symbolized sin and ignorance. It symbolized danger and judgment. It symbolized death. I believe here, darkness symbolizes judgment. So the darkness will be intense. The worshipers of the beast will feel God's judgment against their sin. They will be reminded constantly of the darkness, that they are under the just judgment of a holy God. And yet, rather than being moved to repentance and moved to faith like you would think, what do they do? They continue to curse God. Even as they gnaw their tongues in anguish, they shake their fists at God and refuse to repent of their evil deeds. They curse God. Then the sixth angel pours his bowl out on the Euphrates River. This is an interesting bowl judgment because there's really no uh, judgment like we've seen that actually comes upon the people. This bowl is poured out onto the Euphrates River, and the river is dried up. Now, this river back then was the boundary of ancient Israel. It was the boundary of the Roman Empire. And so as we think about this, it may be symbolic. It may be uh, something that actually takes place in the future, but it is so Whether or not it's symbolic or literal, it is a picture of the nations of the world joining together, uniting together in their war against God and against God's people. There's many theories around this and how it's going to take place and exactly what it is, but I believe we we can surmise that this is a picture of the nations of the world coalescing together in their war against God and his people for one final battle. Verse 16 tells us the battle at Armageddon. 
So the danger now is tantamount for God's people. It's unparalleled as the forces of evil are mustering together to put it in. I mean, have you not seen this all throughout Revelation, how God's people are constantly at war, or the, people, the apostate man and, and godless man and, and those who worship the beast are always at war with God and his people. They want to put an end. Remember Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is seeking to put to death the baby, but when he can't harm the baby boy or harm the mother, he goes after her offspring, which is the church. He's always warring against God's people. So this is going to be an unparalleled time of danger for God's people. Many of them will be martyred for their faith. And yet as they battle here, God is going to protect them. And I love what Jesus says here in verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In this danger, Jesus speaks. And what does he say to the church? He reminds them that he's going to return. He gives them a message about his faithfulness. We just sang about God's faithfulness. In fact, Ben, I don't know if you realize this, but you set it up so beautifully. We sing about the cross of Jesus. We sing about the salvation that comes through the cross and the fact that Jesus will return. But in between the cross and the return of Christ, the church goes through all kinds of tribulations, culminating in a great tribulation. What's the one constant in between those two points? The faithfulness of God. And so I believe wholeheartedly that the church will endure. The church will persevere. The church will be fine. Even as they're being put to death for their faith, they will be fine because God will be faithful to them. And there will be a day when Jesus steps out at the Battle of Armageddon and it is over. I read one commentator this week said this about Armageddon. In a one millisecond, as Jesus opens his mouth and speaks a word, it's over. There's no jockeying for position. There's no, we got to get over here and strategically make a maneuver here or over there. We got to flank them from the side. There's going to be none of that. Jesus will speak and it will be over. And so Jesus tells the church, be alert. I will return. I'm coming like a thief. Stay awake so that you're not exposed. The seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air, and the judgments are finished. Can I get an amen? The kingdom of God inaugurated on the cross is now going to be finally and fully present. This finality to God's judgment is seen in this storm theophany here where the, the, there's rumblings and lightning and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as the world has never experienced before. So great, John says, of this earthquake that the great city, Babylon, is going to be split into three parts and the cities of the nations will fall. The islands will flee away from the presence of God. This will be a, a, a monumentous a situation and an event like nothing has ever known. Divine judgment on every person in every nation who followed the rebellion of Babylon will face here the full cup of the wrath and the fury of God in, in, in such a way that giant hailstones, 100 pounds apiece, will fall on people. I saw and read this week that on record, I think the largest hailstones ever measured, weighed, 
are like, I think it's like one and a half pounds in America. I think it was in Kansas that a, that a pound and a half hailstone fell. And I guess before it thawed enough, they got it on a, a scale and, and weighed it. And it weighed a pound and a half. Can you imagine walking down the, the street and a pound and a half piece of ice falls from 30,000 feet up and it hits you in the head? You can imagine what that's going to do to a person's life. It's over. It's gone. I read somewhere else that the, the largest in the world was like two and a half pounds, and I don't remember where it was, but, I mean, devastating destruction coming from hailstones. But here, we're not talking with pound and two-pounders. We're talking a 100-pound hailstone. We're talking giant boulders falling from the sky as God destroys those who've risen against him. Nothing like that's ever happened in history. Response, verse 21, to all of this judgment, this just judgment, is that the people continue to curse God and refuse to repent. It would seem, like we said last week, it would seem that in the face of such fury, in the face of such vitriol, in the face of such judgment from God, that mankind would be brought to their knees in dust and ashes, repenting of sin, turning from their wickedness, begging God for grace and mercy, and yet that is not what they do. They continue to shake their fist in God's face, cursing him for the pain that they're having, accusing God of being the oppressor and them being the victim. These seven bowls of wrath, which God will pour out on the living in that rebellion, they are severe and awful. That's an understatement, by the way. The whole scenario is disturbing, as I just said, as the world is uniting into one people against the Lord, only to be destroyed. And so as we think about this and as we study this chapter and as we try to make sense of it, here's a couple applications that I want you to take with you as we strive to be alert. Every week, let me just say this, every week as, as I'm preparing and, and trying to study and write and, and present this in a way that is applicable to our lives, it's hard. I'll just be honest with you. It's hard. I mean, it's doom and gloom. It's one, it's one doomsday after another in Revelation, especially at this point. And yet there's the brightness of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his salvation and his justice. God is a just God. I'm so grateful this morning that he does not allow any sin to, to, to escape or to be passed over. Here's three things I want you to see. God is just, number one, in the judgment he pours out. We touched on this quite a bit last week. But by way of reminder, I want to just make it this point once again. God is just in the judgment he pours out. So when we're reading this and we think 100-pound uh, hailstones, earthquakes that just destroy everything, isn't that a little excessive, Lord? No, it's not. Isn't hell that's eternity a little excessive. Why not just annihilate people? Why not who those who rebel against you? Why, God, why not just disintegrate them like in Avengers if Infinity War where they just kind of turn into dust and just, just evaporate into nothing? Why not do that, Lord? No, it's not going to be that at all. Why? Because their sin, our sin, is in a sin against an infinite and eternal God, which means it requires an infinite and eternal judgment. And God is just in how he judges. Last time we said God is God. 
When we think about his judgment, we need to remember he's God. He's sovereign. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of everything. Therefore, he's the one who rules. He reigns. He is sovereign over all. Therefore, he's the one who has the authority. He establishes the rules. It's his book, not our book. His word then makes it clear what he expects, and it shows us how we're to relate to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of this, we see that he graciously and mercifully offers opportunities for repentance and faith. All throughout salvation history, he's been making that appeal to humanity, making that appeal to sinners. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, you who are trodden down with sin. Come to me, those of you who are burdened with your trespasses. Those of you who are dead, come and find life in me. Come and live in me. Abide in me. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see God speaking and calling and drawing people to himself. We see his love. Romans 5 8, God demonstrates his love in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, right? We didn't go seeking him, we didn't go looking for him, we didn't go looking for salvation. He came calling and drawing to us. Even in the judgment that we've seen here through the seals, the trumpets, and now even through the bowls, there is this call for repentance, a call for faith. And yet what we've seen by and large from humanity is a rejection of the gospel, a rejection of Christ. Even today we see that. People would rather worship a false god to their own destruction. And so what they receive from God will be what they wanted. It will be what they deserve. God gives us what we deserve. Romans Chapter 1, 18 through 22, tells us that as we suppress the truth in our life, God just allows us to walk and to live in that downward spiral of destruction. As we reject God and reject God and reject God and reject God, He gives us what we want. You say, I don't want to go to hell. You do too. You must because you're rejecting Christ. You must because you're rejecting the gospel. When the Bible Bible tells us that a person dies apart from Christ... It also tells us that they receive the just penalty for their sin in hell. They will spend eternity separated from God because that is simply what they wanted throughout their entire life. They will experience the full wrath of eternal God against their sin for all of eternity because they love their sin instead of him. God is just in that. We need to celebrate that. And man, that's negative, isn't it? It just sounds negative, but it's not. It's not. God gives us opportunities. Number two, second thing I want us to pull out of this chapter is that demonic forces fuel the opposition against God and his people. Going back to the sixth trumpet, there is the, the not trumpet, the sixth bowl. As it's poured on the great, great river Euphrates, something happens here. John tells us that he sees the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, all of them, open their mouths, and something like frogs come out, these demonic spirits, and they go and they begin to deceive the nations. They're used to bring the nations together to deceive them into joining the battle against the Lord Jesus Christ there at Armageddon and to put an end to the people of God. And so this is none other than Satan doing what Satan does. Satan is the dragon, the Antichrist is the beast, and the false prophet is the second beast that comes up out of the earth. And if you remember what Jesus said in John 10.10, what is Satan always seeking to do? Steal, kill, and destroy. 
He's behind everything that's in opposition to the Lord. Today, Satan is behind every terroristic threat, every, every terroristic act in the world. He is behind. He is behind the plaguing of the peoples of the war, or the wars that plague the peoples of the world. He's behind all of them. He is the one who incites church shootings and the oppression of believers in countries all over the face of the earth, even here in America. He's ever working to create and blow the winds of fear in our lives. The devil wants to steal our joy. He wants to steal our testimony. He wants to steal everything that's good in our lives. Every economic, every medical, every geopolitical doomsday story has a demon behind it. Now, I'm not telling you to think about a demon behind every rock, but there's a demon behind every rock. We've got our own part to play in that. We all have a fleshly nature. We all have a sinful nature. And if we're not redeemed, that's doubly so, right? But there's a demon behind fueling, fanning, moving that into play there. He's behind all of that stuff. The junk that we see in our country today, the, the devil's behind it. The demons of hell are behind it. You think there's this chaos happening here? It's just because different warring factions within our society are taking place? No, there is a spiritual force behind all of that. All of this fear around a virus and social justice and, and all of that stuff. There is the demons of hell who are behind it. It's the work of that old dragon getting us into a frenzy at each other's throats. That isn't because it's human against human. It's because there's demons fueling it. So don't forget that we have an enemy. Don't forget that his name is Satan. He is the dragon here in Revelation. And he and his demons are always our enemies. They're always at war with us. But we need to remember that we're not at war with one another. I saw a study or a couple points the other day that Chuck Lawless, he, he always give some points out there about ministry, about pastors and things. And it was some article about um, like five things or six things that pastors really fear that's happening in their church. And one of those, I believe, was something to the, to the effect of pastors are deeply concerned that what's happening in our society today, debate over coronavirus, debate over social justice, debate over whatever is out there, is ripping the church apart. And it's happening. We can become so inundated with our particular viewpoints on things that we no longer can ally with one another in the gospel. So we're not at war with one another. We need to remember that. Paul said in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? The spiritual forces of evil. So we hold on to and we continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what unites us. There's a third thing that I want you to see uh, this morning. And that is believers must remain alert as they persevere in faith. Verse 15 here calls us to spiritual vigilance. The language is borrowed from the letters to the two most endangered churches back in Revelation chapter 3. That is the letter to the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea. Now, those, those churches are not in danger because they're just on fire for the Lord and they're being persecuted by the Roman Empire or by the, the, the Jewish people. No, they're in danger because of their spiritual authority, because of their spiritual apathy, because they care more about the things of the world than they do about the things of the Lord. Seems a whole lot like the American church today, who's sleeping and slumbering. Are we awake this morning? Are we awake today in the American church? Is the church ready and is it prepared? Are we living with a sense of expectation like Jesus calls us to here in verse 15? 
I believe the things that have taken place over the last five months have helped for, for me better understand how some of these things that we read in Revelation can actually take place. I've often wondered, how in the world would people be so naive to take the mark of the beast upon their life, whatever that's going to look like? And yet I feel like now I can understand that a little bit more. We're a little bit more uh, um, understanding of how those things can happen because fear can create within us any sort of desire to follow what's easy. It clarifies the importance of prizing Christ and the gospel. Today I wonder for us as the American church, do we rely more on Jesus than we do our constitution, our way of life, our tradition, or, or just this American idea of living. What do we rely most upon in our lives? Is it Jesus? Will we be able to be found faithful? If the great tribulation was happening today, would we be those who stood up and says, I will never forsake Jesus, even if it costs me all my life, and that moment your head's on the ground? Or would we, would we be those who would cower and give in? Will we persevere in our faith when things begin to get bad? That's a question that keeps running through my mind. I believe that God gives you the faith you need for the moment. I believe God gives you the strength that you need for the moment, but do we have a desire to have that in our life so that we can persevere and be faithful in whatever era of history that we live in? It's going to continue to get worse for us as believers. And when that day comes, will we be found faithful and ready? So what, is, what should this do for us? Trouble should lead the church to pray more fervently. Amen? How many of us have prayed more fervently over the last five months? We started off saying, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven, God says, forgive their sin and heal their land. How many of us over the last five months have prayed more fervently? Trouble should lead the church to share more lovingly. Is it creating love within our hearts for our fellow brothers and sisters in the church? Love in our hearts for our neighbors and the nations. Trouble should lead the church to anticipate the return of Christ more expectantly. Do we have a deep expectancy for the love of, or the return of Christ in our life? Are we longing for that day? Not just as an escape, but because we see the, the injustices around us, we long for the return of Christ because we know that when he comes, this judgment comes with him, and sin will be no more. The enemy will be no more. And when we get to the chapter 20 and 21, when we see the judgment fully and finally being exhausted as the enemy is thrown into the lake of fire, it is done for all of eternity. We long for that. Or are we just looking to get by today? With really no concept, no awareness of anything other than what is happening to us. Seven bowls of wrath. The last several years, I've enjoyed being a watchdog at my daughter's school. If you don't know what a watchdog is, it's simply a, a program for dads to come into the schools and spend the day there helping the administration, helping the faculty, and spending time with kids, get to spend time with your, your own children and doing things in their classroom and other things like that. It's a, just a great way. But, you know, it, the day starts always the same, at least it does at Powhatan Elementary. You go in, you're supposed to be there as the bell rings, you're in the office, the principal does the announcements, and, uh, and I think before they even do that, they do the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, 
Sometimes, uh, as adults, we don't do the Pledge of Allegiance, and so it's good to be in that setting and, and to do that once again. But I love how the Pledge of Allegiance ends. You remember? One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And I forget the rest part. And then it goes, oh, yeah, I just said it, injustice for all. I did say it. I thought I was going to mess it up there, but I actually said it. How about that? And justice for all. We believe that as a nation, do we not? We believe in justice. As Christians, we believe in justice. The reason our nation believes in justice is because it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. We believe in justice. We believe in justice because God is just. This idea is not original with us. God is the God of justice, and there will be justice for all. We know this is true because of these seven bowls of wrath. Here's another thing that we know about it. We know God is just because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And all of us will stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives, what we've done justly and unjustly. We will give an account for the sin in our lives. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand before the Lord, and if we have not done anything with the cross of Jesus Christ, we stand there with our sin in our hands, and we will bear the judgment for our sin on our own. But if we've come to the cross, and unlike these in Revelation 16, rather than cursing God, we've turned in faith and repentance to God. We will stand there, not with our sin. We will stand there in the grace of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, our advocate, will stand with us and say, Father, they are with me. He is with me. She is with me. That young boy right there, he's with me because he placed his faith in the Lord Jesus. God is just. And he always will act justly in his judgment. Sin was judged on the cross for those who will believe. Sin will be judged in hell for those who fail to believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a God who is just and good and true. A God who is gracious, a God who is merciful, a God who is long-suffering, patient, and kind. Lord, we thank you that you call us and draw us to yourself. God, in this room, many of the people here have responded in faith. They've responded in repentance. God, they're children of God. I pray your blessings upon them. God, I pray this morning as we've walked through Revelation 16 and we've tried to expound the justness of God and the faithfulness of God. Pray that it stirred a passion and a desire to live with a little bit more expectancy for your return, a little bit more love toward others, a little bit more determination in our prayer walk prayer life. Father, for those maybe online watching us this morning who never repented and turned from their sins, God, may today be the day for them. Lord, even right now, may your Holy Spirit just impress upon their heart that what they've heard today is true. God, you in your justice judge sin. They can either carry their sin themselves or by faith and through repentance allow Jesus to carry it for them. As he declared on the cross to tell us that it is finished. Here in these seven bowls, Lord, you're going to say it is done. You are a just God. Help us to come to you in faith. stand to our feet. If you're watching this online, if you're here in the room, God is speaking in your heart, speaking in your life. I want to encourage you to respond. If you're online, even in here, for that matter, on the screen you'll see how 
we would encourage you to respond. Send us a message some way. We would love to be able to follow up and pray with you. If you got a prayer need, send that our way as well. But let's sing and let's respond to the Lord's prompting.